What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod. The two people that give you your weekly look what's going on in pop culture. I am here with Dave Martin Swagger. As always, Dave, how you doing, man? Hey, man, how's it going, you Ichabod Crane motherfucker? <laughs> yeah, uh, Secession. It, having just an amazing season so far. and uh, Maybe maybe we'll, we'll check in with it next week or in the following weeks when we have some more time. Because, Dave, this episode of Nostalgia is going to be pretty packed uh we're gonna, be, we're gonna be talking some music some t- tv some movies and then emmy predictions at the end but before we jump into any of that hit that subscribe button if you're watching or listening on youtube and go to soundcloud.com slash nostalgia pod to find all the ways to catch the podcast dave it's uh it's been quite a while since we talked some game of thrones why don't we start there this week it was announced that the second prequel show for HBO will be uh, coming out in the near future. It was announced that it will be following the Targaryen storyline um, and specifically following the, the book um, the, of Blood and Fire. Fire and, and Blood. Fire and Blood, sorry. And <laughs> it's interesting because it, it starts about 300 years before the Game of Thrones show on HBO. Uh, with the Targaryen conquests and then kind of follows their lineage. Uh, I have a feeling we'll be talking about some of the actors that played the Targaryens in Game of Thrones as we wrap up the oh. show. But how are you feeling about this uh, this prequel and what it's going to be detailing? Right. Yeah, so this is the second uh, prequel pilot that's been ordered. That's uh, coming off of the Asia Heroes Long Night pilot that they already shot. Uh, with Naomi Watts at the forefront. They just did the pilot. They haven't actually greenlit that show yet. Uh, but that one, obviously, set thousands of years in the past, right? Time mm-hmm. of Bran the Builder and all that stuff. Now, this one, as you said, the Targaryen, you know, starting with, start, Targaryen story starting with the Aegon's Conquest, that's 300 years before the show. So that's in turn a large swath of, you know, TV history time to pick from, but also a lot closer to the show that. 40 million people are familiar with and depending on how they frame this i mean if you wanted you could do seasons from the start with akon's conquest and advance up a few years and uh the rumor is that it would start with the dance with dragons which is about 150 years before robert's rebellion which kicks off the game of thrones story everyone knows and that's a you know i mean that's just a rumor but that's honestly one of the events that people have had atop the list. I think when we first talked about the prospect of all those pilots that were ordered a year, year and a half ago or so, that was, you know, one of the top choices for everyone. And the question, of course, was the Dance of Dragons. This is when there's lots of dragons in uh, alive still. And they're fighting against each other because it's a Targaryen civil war, right? And that sounds expensive. And we already know HBO is up against it when they're final season of Game of Thrones cost $15 million an episode and they couldn't uh, show you much of a dire wolf because they already had to spend all the money on the dragons and that was only uh, three dragons, right? Yeah. Um, how are you going to handle when uh, you know, there's like 15? A lot, and these are also like you know, 80, 100 year old dragons that are a lot bigger than Drogon was who was only like, yeah, like five or whatever. Uh, so really exciting premise. It'd definitely be a go for it. Uh, concept, but I actually think it's kind of smart because Targaryens, yeah, Starks, 
high towers, you know, all martels, all all the all the houses and 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 cities and and you know names people know will be in would be in the show if that's when it took place. And I think that could really roll people back in because we know the story is compelling and exciting and kind of has all the backstabbing palace intrigue and also this the crazy set pieces that we come to love from Game of Thrones itself. So I think it's a great idea. I'm just curious if they can do it at the scale that it needs to be done at to be, be good. Yeah, I have to imagine that if, if they're picking this and they're already anticipating that, so uh, I guess it's going to be about the sustainability of that scale. Mm-hmm. I have no doubt they're going to come out guns blazing and uh, try to make this a successor right off the bat. Um, but how they can sustain that when, you know, that budget's going to get eaten up pretty quickly. Uh, and and we, I think that can pretty much also guarantee that we're not going to be getting a lot of big named actors for this. Um, you know, like you have Naomi Watts headlining the other prequel, but I imagine they'll probably go similar to the way Game of Thrones had maybe like one when it started off. Sean Bean, I guess, would probably be the, the one that you would say. And then, um, you kind of fill it out with quality actors who, but maybe you don't have that name recognition, which I think is fine. And I actually, uh, I have a lot of faith in HBO to find actors who will um, do a suitable job. So I, I'm, I'm here for it. As you said, picking the Targaryens or, or the Starks or any house like that that people are invested in um, is definitely the way to go to kind of rejuvenate that interest. I think the more obscure you go with, the, with Thrones, the more you're going to alienate those fans that, aren't aware of these stories on a deeper basis. Yeah, and in case you didn't know, this is obviously Benioff and Weiss are not involved with this. This is mm-hmm. uh, Ryan uh, Condal, who's known for Colony, and then the, the Age of Heroes long night show is with Jane Goldman. So new blood for HBO, but I mean, I, I would assume if they do go through with these shows, you know, take them to order, uh, you have to figure Game of Thrones is in the title, right? Yeah. Just, uh, marketing standpoint, right? Game of Thrones, Fire and Blood already has a good ring to it. Why would you change that? Um, another show that I think has a good ring to it, an HBO property, The Deuce, coming back for its trace and final season. Um, yeah, so David Simon, uh, director of The Wire, a Show Me a Hero, uh, really awesome TV director. Um, we've talked about the deuce and how it, it probably is one of the most unappreciated great shows that's out there right now. You know, it's never really in the discussion for best show of the year. We're going to be talking Emmys and it doesn't get the Emmy nominations, but overall, just a really quality show. And Simon builds out this world of New York City and Times Square and the rise of pornography out of uh, the slums of the, the sex trade and things like that. And, um, Times Square in New York City at the time. And now season three takes a jump forward from the late 70s into 19, the end of 1984 going into 1985. And a lot has changed. Um, and a lot of it, not so much for the better, it seems. You know, cocaine is pretty much everywhere. Uh, <laughs> Bumps AIDS everywhere. It's just like hanging over everybody's heads. Um, and the once again, the the landscape of this the sex trade uh, field is changing as uh, home video is starting to shape the way that pornography is shot. So there's a lot going on. Um, how did how did you feel about the 
the premiere, which aired last Monday. Yeah, I liked it a lot. And as you, you know, jumping the show up eight years, crazily enough, I think it was really wise because, as you said, it advances the world that's already so, you know, richly drawn by Simon and Pelicanos and uh, taking that up a notch because at the end of season two, the, the specter of AIDS and the coming of home video was present in the show and on the mind of some characters, but wasn't really, you know, in, in, in consciousness for everyone. And as you said, just bringing it up and now having AIDS being part of it, and, you know, the show has truly left the sex trade behind in favor of poor and important has already taken its next phase on the show, right? You know, it was really smart just to change uh, the dynamic and see how these really uh, finely drawn characters that we've come to know in this ensemble are reacted as they've, you know, aged and grown in this uh, evolving time, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, the the pimp characters uh, are basically gone. Um, I think the ones who came in are the best, Method Man and uh, CC, of course, died last season. And uh, Gary Carr in particular played CC was really great. Uh, I really liked liked his performance, so it does suck that he's not around anymore. But I think there's a lot, a lot of opportunities for for new faces, and we get Corey Stoll, who's uh, one of the bigger names to come in since the show started. Right, obviously Franco's the, and Gyllenhaal are the bigger, biggest faces, but uh, interesting potential for for him for sure. Uh, but yeah, uh, eighty five man, go, they go to CES in the premiere. It's kind of cool, you know. Yeah. So, I, I've always just liked how. Simon Staple, he just really knows how to show uh, the seedy nature of whatever, you know, world he's drawing, whether it's Iraq and Generation Kill or New Orleans, you know, and Tremaine, like, it doesn't really matter what, what he's telling, but he just really knows how to, I think, have a, a larger message. And there's been a lot of talk about, is Simon uh, reflecting on his own career because he doesn't make blockbuster TV that gets awarded? And is that popular, as you said? And we know that these days, pop, uh, blockbuster is the only thing that really sells. Is, is he making a comment on himself through the uh, way that porn can no longer be a tourist? Circa mm-hmm. 1985. Interesting thought. Uh, we'll see if that continues. But uh, I think it's an interesting observation. But uh, uh, I re- I'm really excited for where the show starts you off and for all the characters to go from here. I think it's a good, great, great place to start. The idea of Simon having a, a once upon a time in Hollywood type commentary on his own <laughs> career is really, really fascinating. Something I hadn't really thought about. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it, you know, especially I think using candy as the, the avatar for himself in the show. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and candy played by Maggie Gyllenhaal. Uh, I mean, she, she's involved in this, but her role has definitely changed in probably the most over the last, two seasons she's gone from being a uh hooker on the street being a respected pornography specifically feminist pornography filmmaker um although that seems to be also changing as this episode uh, she's talked to by harvey about how that's just not making money at this point and they have to kind of shift away and i think she's the character i feel most interested to see where she goes Especially when you introduce a uh, guy like Corey Stoll, an actor like Corey Stoll, to kind of be her, uh, I don't know, new, I'm guessing her new beau of some sort in this season and how that's going to... Seems likely. Yeah, how that's going to 
impact her and, and shift. I can also see that kind of being a a way of showing how the the industry, so to speak, uh, stops or hinders people from having relationships. Because uh, I, I could imagine that she might hide this for a while or something like that from him. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, what other characters are you most interested in going into this season or storylines? Yeah, well, I mean, they they make it quite clear that uh, Abby and Vince are continuing to move apart in the relationship. Uh, it's just an open relationship at this point, right? I can't imagine that ends well. Also, Lori <laughs> gets out of rehab and is doing lines by the end of the episode. Uh, another thing that even though she's escaped uh, CC and seems to be pretty successful as mm-hmm. a uh, porn actress, uh, still has her issues. So even though the locales have changed, the the the, the times have changed. Uh, you know, there's a lot of bad bad stuff to come. You figure, and of course the for, of course uh, shit, Paul, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, being so close to the, the AIDS world, uh, it's uh, we know that's not going to get any better. And I mean, it was actually interesting to hear uh, Rudy Pippolo talk about how AIDS has also hurt his business, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then Bobby. Is Bobby going to get AIDS? You know, uh, is Luke Kirby going to get AIDS? Uh, you know, who knows? Uh, but yeah, Simon is never one to really do anything cheaply or for shock. Mm-hmm. You know, so I mean, shit. Last season, CC dies kind of unremarkably, right? He just kind of gets beat, <laughs> fucking murdered by Bobby and Franco, and it was kind of mm-hmm. uh, unspectacular. So I can't imagine anything's going to be too melodramatic when it comes to the AIDS stuff. But uh, really, can't wait to see what's next. Yeah, you mentioned this before. How do you feel about the, um, you know, the lack of black characters now that they've moved away from, like the, you know, the, the pimps and the the hookers dynamic and more just towards the the pornography scene? Yeah, it, it's noticeable, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, obviously, because it's Simon, Simon's someone who's really good at uh, handling race. He's done it before, so I don't think he's gonna really, I was really gonna hold it against him, but. Um, Depending on how this season goes, maybe it's an unforced error. Um, but having the show advance in time and in in line with history, yeah, was a good idea. I think so. We'll, we'll see if we get any other characters. But yeah, it, it's noticeable at the start for sure. You pretty much only have uh, Chris played by Lawrence Gillier Jr. and uh, I'm I'm assuming Larry Larry Brown has to come back. Uh, played I think really well by uh, Egg Benga. Ekinagbe, right. yeah, um, and you know he was kind of moving into being like a, a porn star in and of his own right. So potentially we'll come across him or follow him somewhat too. Um, but yeah, I feel I do feel like there's a bit of a hole in terms of those dynamics, and you really I think come to and this is something Simon does really well. You really come to I think feel like you build relationships with these characters who you never usually would, and you really start to like them. Even Cece, who you know you said was played so brilliant brilliant brilliantly um he was a really terrible person and you really end up like feeling pretty endeared to him and then he's just gone you know just killed and uh I, simon just does, does such a great job with this world building it's really really awesome uh i'm really interested to see how they incorporate um like the the home video with with the pornography now you know they were showing like the the, the shortcuts to, you know, in the pornography with um, music behind it and things like that. And 
I think there can be some really funny stuff done with that, especially the the um, images of, of the people who are making those sort of films. <laughs> sure. So interested to see how that goes. Any last thoughts on the deuce before we wrap up? Uh, you know, interesting. Uh, Simon already shot his next show uh, this yeah. past year. The Philip Roth miniseries, The Plot Against America. Uh, definitely not what I expected him to tackle next, but it sounds cool. It's, it's yeah. a good book. Yeah, Simon's awesome. Uh, I'm on board for whatever he does. Uh, also a Baltimore native, like the guy we're talking about next. JPEG Mafia. Damn, All my heavy. heroes are cornballs. Um, yeah, so this is his only his third album, but he's been around for a little bit, right? Yeah, a lot of tapes, a lot of EPs. Yeah. And this album, All My Heroes Are Cornballs, is a follow-up to last year's Veteran, which I think got some buzz around it. What was your take on Veteran? I don't remember reviewing it. We didn't review it. It came out in January. Uh, it's really good, though. Uh, it's a lot like this new album, I think, with just less singing. Uh, and kind of this new album, All My Heroes Are Cornballs, is kind of a continuation of vet- Veteran in terms of Peggy's uh, self-aware, dark humor, uh, confrontational attitude and uh delivery and all that it, it's it's kind of you know peak peak Peggy, i think um and we've we've kind of mentioned him in passing because he was on the flume ep this year he was on denzel curry's taboo last year he was on injury reserve earlier in the year but we, this is you know this is the first project of his we've actually talked about in earnest but i'm happy we are because i do think he's a really exciting and unique voice in hip-hop that's definitely beats to the, uh, his own drum you know and this is quite an album. Um, and I mean that in a good way. I, I found this to be a really interesting listen. And uh, for I'm not super aware, other than the, the tracks I had heard uh, JPEG Mafia on, like you already mentioned, um, I was really pleasantly surprised that he, it seems like he put a lot of thought into this album. And even though, some of it, I don't know if I totally get everything that's going on in here. There's a lot of like <laughs> choppiness, a lot of cuts to like random sounds and just things kind of put in there, like uh, distorted voices, or I think there's even some like messages for like voicemails played at certain yeah. points. Um, I think this album flows together really well, and it almost made it hard for me to pick a favorite song that I liked because the way I listened to agree. it. Yeah, I just listened to it as one whole piece, and I found it to be really, really engaging pretty much throughout. So, um, tell me, give me your your general thoughts about this album, then we'll kind of dive deeper into some of the tracks, maybe. Yeah, so this I mentioned the singing. The singing stood out to me because he hasn't really done it before, mm-hmm. and I thought it was actually done pretty well. The first single, "Jesus Forgive Me, I'm a Thought," <laughs> uh, you know, he sings on that, he croons a little bit, and I think it's done well. And uh, he, this is a whole album is completely self-produced by him. I mean, I think there's some session work from other musicians, but it's really all Peggy. And it's a really, I don't know, you kind of said it already, atmospheric sound. Mm. And it's kind of like distorted production at times, but it's funny because I think the whole framing of his album is a lot like his other projects too, because I mean, you can look at even from the, the face value, the song titles a lot of times are ridiculous, right? Beta male strategies, <laughs> uh, thought tactics, post-verified lifestyle, and my favorite, JPEG Mafia type beat, which is hilarious uh, if you know anything about how 
people make beats on YouTube these days. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it continues. Like his first album is called Black Ben Carson. On Veteran, uh, one of the great songs is called I Cannot Fucking Wait Till Morrissey Dies. <laughs> one of his best singles is called uh, I Might Vote for Donald Trump. You know, he's really in your face guy mm-hmm. who goes at everyone. He takes his shots at everyone. He's ultimately a progressive dude. And he's actually had the alt right go after him in the past. But he also will go after the libtards, you know, he'll go after oversensitive people and uh, lame white people. He'll go after anyone. Soy boys. If, of course. <laughs> and, well, I don't think all of his uh, observations, not, not all of them are as deep as he might present them to be. A lot of times they're just kind of half-finished thoughts, you know. Uh, and not all of his jokes uh, land either. I think just because the confidence is so winning <laughs> from Peggy. Yeah. And we know it's genuine because he's been doing this for his whole career. Um, you know, I think his second his second EP was called uh, "Dark Skin Manson." You know, like he's 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 been con- trying to be controversial the whole time, but he's not like a he's not like trying to be a grifter or anything. Yeah. So I, I really enjoy it, even if yeah, I, as you said, it's hard. I think in the first listen, it was hard to pick out individual moments on this. Yeah, so that missed that to me at the scene just because it was new. But yeah, uh, not a whole lot of fat from what I can remember. Yeah, no, I didn't think there's a lot of fat on it. it. I think it just is so unique in terms of the the production on this that um, it's hard, I think, to just be like, oh, this one song is good because a song is going in one direction and then halfway through he'll just like either be like screaming all of a sudden or he'll be like having these guitars just kind of come like flaring up and you're like, I don't really know what to make of this, but I know I'm, I'm enjoying it, or at least engaged by it. Um, a couple of the tracks that, that did stand out to me, however, um, Basic Bitch Tear Gas, yes. um, I thought it was pretty good. and you Completely know, unexpected. Yeah, doing this like chopped and screwed cover of No Scrubs, just fucking awesome. Um, PTSD, I thought, actually was pretty well done, uh, and I thought his, the use of his voice in that was really interesting, how it kind of starts off this falsetto at the beginning and then kind of switches up to this like screaming in a sense to talk about and he's talking about some serious shit on this too which i give him a lot of credit for talking about gun violence and kind of the larger uh trauma it's it's created for the country i thought was excellent um what what song stood out to you i really like beta male strategies (laughs) yeah uh thought tactics Mm -hmm. basic bitch tear gas again just (laughs) because That's like the fourth to last song on the album. It just comes so out of nowhere, man. Yep. I was like waiting for him to like flip the song or anything, but no, it's just like a 90 second cover at the beginning of (laughs) No Scrubs. Really funny. Um, uh, Let's see. Uh, Jeez, forgive me. I have a thought. Again. uh, Yeah. That's a lot different than a lot of his past songs, to be honest. And I still think it it works. So yeah, really, really, really fun album. But again, Unlike really anything else, really cool. Yeah, definitely give it a listen. Uh, JPEG Mafia surprising us with an excellent album, one of probably the most unique ones of the year. Charlie XCX, Dave, Charlie, were you were you surprised at this? Because I'm pretty sure you were a huge Charlie XCX stand back in 2017 with Pop Two. Am I right? Nailed it. Yes. Yeah. So Charlie XCX got on the scene early. Right, like people have known about Charlie XX for a long time. We know Boom Clap, 
and we know the Iconopop song, I Love It. And of course, you know Fancy by Iggy Azalea, of which Charlie is on the hook. It's the part everyone sings and, and repeats, right? So 2012 to 2013 was crazy. Right. She's been in the in, in the mainstream pop landscape for some time, yet I never really thought much of her music until 2017 happened, like you said. Number One Angel and Pop 2, two projects, two tapes from 2017, beginning in the end. And that's when I think it really came out that people were like, wait a minute, Charlie has been writing all these mainstream traditional pop songs for everyone for a while, doing some of it on her own, as I said. But she's actually really into like this alt future pop and this like really non-traditional pop music, despite being someone who's existing and, and successful within the mainstream pop space. That was just really exciting to me. And Charlie, third album, is a lot like pop too. But I think there's actually some songs that are going to do well on the radio, which is interesting. I think she's taken mainstream pop to the future today with this. Whereas in, with pop too, in 2017, it sounded like really out there. It doesn't sound as out there now. I think like pop has changed a little bit. And people like Taylor Swift, and Ariana Grande have taken some of the sonic ideas Charlie's just kind of messed around with on her own and brought that more to the mainstream. And now Charlie can actually do that in the mainstream now, do the type of pop she's always liked. So yes, I am quite a big fan. And I like this album a lot. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought this was a pretty good album. It's interesting because I, I, I think she's a really strong songwriter and singer on her own. And she does a lot of collaboration. Um, and I think, I think I actually could have used a little bit less on this because I think that some of them, some of the collaborations didn't seem to fit completely for me. But I also think that the songs that on the brightest were ones where she had some really interesting collaborations. Like, um, I really enjoyed the one where she had Big, uh, Brig, Big Fridia, Cupcake, um, Big yep. Frida, Cupcake, and uh, I, forgot, I forgot what the last song the track was, but Shake It. I, I think that one is a really strong song and just so bouncy and fun. I could see that really uh, moving up Billboard charts pretty quickly. Um, but songs like the song with Lizzo, um, I I just didn't think fit as well in this album. And I, I think moving forward, uh, I'd like to see Charlie XCX stand on her own a little bit more. Um, especially because you see someone like, oh man, um, I don't know. We, we've had a lot of releases from really strong female artists this year. Taylor Swift, Ariana Grande, um, Camille Caballo earlier in the year, Lana Del Rey, you know? Um, and I think that she could be, I think she can reach that level. I just think that she needs to, uh, own her own craft and maybe not rely on the collaboration as much just a thought because she it's so interesting some of the stuff she does like that song shake it her voice is like so modified it's almost like this like mm -hmm. floaty bubbly type sound and then she just lets everybody else take over and i'm like right i, I love the features on, on that they kill it but i want to hear more of like that that production and whatever whatever she's trying to go for with this i want to hear more of that from her so i, I think that she's just reaching the level of her talent yeah well i think to that point 
towards the end of the album, you have February 2017 with Clyro and uh, Yeji. That, I think, is exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Well, that's a song that just sounds really out there. But then it followed that up at the last track of the album, 2099, with Troy Sivan, mm-hmm. like, you know, the sequel track to 1999. 1999 is this banger bop pop song that came out last year, a song I love. But that's, you know, definitely a traditional pop song. And then 2099 is anything but, you know. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned with that Lizzo song, which was, I think, uh, the supplemental track on the sound that came out earlier in this year, that's just a traditional pop track that, yeah, you're right. It doesn't really, I guess, serve a sonic purpose on the record, which is interesting because it's a rework lyrically of track 10 on pop two. It's basically the same song, just much more uh, normal, normal produced production and mm-hmm. vocal reflection and stuff. But I think overall, this is like interesting because with the Lizzo track, with some of the overlines on some of the features here, you have Charlie almost hedging a little bit on that future, future six stuff. Yet, I think for the most part, it still works. I thought Heim on yeah. Warm really fit into what she's going for. Then Gone with Christine the Queens, perhaps the best song on the album. I agree. Uh, songwriting wise, that song is just superb. And overall, I think even, you know, songs that might be a little unremarkable, like White Mercedes or Silver Cross, still don't really have any flaws. You know, I think they're just they're well-made tracks. So, uh, yeah, for the most part, I, I really liked every track on here. And I think just, this is, I really hope this can help push Charlie more forward in terms of truly being who she wants to be mm-hmm. on her own. You know, because as I said, she used to be the person at the songwriting camps you know, five, six years ago, writing for other people. And have checked, she's a, one of the co-writers on Senorita, the Camilla Shawn Mendes smash. Yeah. So she's still going to do that, and that works for her. But, you know, she's really starting, I think, to popularize, as I said, the, the weirder shit that she really likes to do. She's really more of a, I think, a dance a dance pop person than a person who's going to open up for Taylor Swift like she did on the Reputation Tour. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, overall, really successful project in my opinion. I really hope some of these songs just hit just for her sake. Because again, I think she deserves to be a a, a name act on on her own. So let's hope some of that works. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I, I think yeah, I think she's uh, a very interesting artist and someone who is definitely creating her own lane within the pop sphere. Um, why don't we move on now to, to some movies, Dave? I'm going to kind of give you the floor because, like most Americans, <sighs> I just couldn't bring myself to go see the Goldfinch this weekend. Uh, and I, I think the the pictures behind you, the, the faces on these people's, um, Ansel Elgore and who's next to him there? I don't know, I don't know his name. Yeah, uh, it kind of <laughs> says it all. I think that's how a lot of people are looking at the Goldfinch with kind of just shock at how this went from being a potential Oscar-worthy movie, or a movie that looked like it was going to get a lot of Oscar buzz to being maybe one of the biggest flops in the last couple of years? Right. Yeah. Um, it's, it's an adaptation of a best-selling novel, The Goldfinch, that literally Pulitzer won prize winning, I think. Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 2014. Yeah. yeah. And John Crowley directed this, who last did Brooklyn, which had three Oscar nominations. Mm-hmm. So you'd think that everyone's making a power play here for some prestige. And I haven't read The Goldfinch, 
obviously. But from what I've gathered, this movie is kind of really faithful as an adaptation. It's a long movie, two and a half hours. It's a, I think it's an 800 page book almost. But it makes a, a, a few a few mistakes, which I'll get into. But as you said, this movie is not just any bomb. It's literally the sixth worst opening weekend for a movie that opened in at least 2,500 theaters. $2.6 million opening weekend. And the budget was $40 million because this takes place in Amsterdam and New York City and Vegas. And they shot in Albuquerque instead of Vegas. But still, there's multiple multiple shoots. So, expensive movie. And bad, bad time for WB because Blinded by the Light also didn't do well. The Kitchen didn't do well. Shaft didn't do well. Godzilla underperformed. Uh, it too did well, though, for them. And Joker will do well. But overall, WB. Man. Bad, bad, bad run right now. Um, but yeah, so people have really been dumping on movies since it premiered at uh, TIFF, and I think it's easy to say the movie's trash, the movie stinks, blah 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 blah. But I mean, to be fair to it, I think it's important to actually you know explain why. And what really stood out to me is the editing. Um, the book is more or less very linear from what I've gathered. If the movie isn't, we flash back. We start with Ansel Elgort uh, playing the adult version of the character character uh, in Amsterdam and we flashback and we have big chunks of his childhood and then uh, memory sequences revolving around the uh, inciting incident in the story which is uh, a bombing at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City which kills Ansel's mom and it just felt unintentionally all over the pl- or unnecessarily all over the place and the stuff with the kids, the young actors, really, really long. Like Ansel is, you know, sold as the lead of this movie and all the marketing, right? And the trailers. We don't get a lot of Ansel for over halfway through, to be honest. Um, and he's hardly a problem. And a lot of people are talking about, is Ansel Elgort actually a movie star? Blah, blah, blah. Is, like, he's fine in the role. Um, I, again, I don't know the character from the page, but he was fine in it. Um, but the story just honestly just, just no there's no pulse to it, man. It's just really lifeless. And the whole point you know, I'm not gonna spoil it, but like the whole point about his mom and the meaning of the goldfinch painting, um it just doesn't really seem to the land uh what what kind of points they're trying to get across. And the whole twist, which I won't spoil, once it happens you're just like, Oh, okay, fine. Uh whatever. And the guy you're seeing on my screen, the adult version of Finn Wolfhard's character, Boris. Finn Wolfhard is bad as Boris, young Boris. He's a really bad Russian accent. Um, he, he was, I think, just miscast a little bit because he's he's playing this guy that kind of exposes Ansel Elgort's character, young character, to uh, drugs and crime and stuff, and just just tough uh, characters that do work. I think Nicole Kidman was pretty good. As the uh, his surrogate mom briefly after the bombing, uh, Luke Wilson uh, plays his deadbeat dad. So he's all right. More interesting was uh, Luke Wilson's girlfriend, played by Sarah Paulson, playing really off type. We're always put from Sarah Paulson. She's kind of this uh, grimy uh, trophy girlfriend kind of CD 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 woman. Uh, really good though. She really chewed on it. So I, I like Sarah Paulson a lot in this role. Um, and she, I think she did as much as she could. Jeffrey Wright um, talks, I think, really 
deeply and profoundly without actually saying much in the movie. Uh, sounds like his part on uh, Westworld. Incredibly similar, actually. <laughs> Good call. Um, yeah, it's just... Uh, it's engaging, kind of, the whole time. But And I think if the editing was tighter, we trimmed this movie a little bit. It's kind of got a weird ensemble, rich ensemble of various characters. Not Most of them are not famous actors. But you kind of forget, like you, you meet the adult characters of people you knew as kids, and you have to like guess in your head, oh, that's that kid, like, like because you don't actually know at first when you're watching, it's a little confusing. Um, but yeah, I think overall the themes about love and meaning and uh, holding on to things that keep you going uh, just did not land for me in film form. So I think the movie just kind of just a bit of a slog overall. And tough, tough beat for WB. What I actually find most interesting about this movie is that this was a co-production by Warner Brothers and Amazon, really the first of its kind, where Amazon fronted about 20-30% of the initial budget, production budget, in exchange for having the exclusive film rights on streaming. Naturally, Warner Brothers would normally have put this movie on HBO their own streaming service. So kind of an interesting thing where a mid-budget movie, $40 million, could be financed by having people split the cost around, right, and selling off the streaming. Now, obviously, this movie was not a success. So will this arrangement work? You have to figure, I mean, this movie's been in the work for several years, obviously. I mean, John Crowley made Brooklyn in 2015. It's been a while, right? Um, will a deal like this come up again? Tough remains to be seen. I think now Warner Brothers with HBO Max probably wouldn't do this again, but Lionsgate, Paramount, Focus, some of those smaller distributors, maybe they would partner with a Netflix or a Amazon. You know, I'm curious to see if this kind of arrangement can perhaps keep the middle tier movie going, as we've talked about in recent mm. weeks. But the Goldfinch, uh, I saw it at 3 p.m. on a Sunday, on opening weekend, and I was one of three people there. <sighs> It's just uh, not great. It's not not interested in the film. Uh, Ansel Elgort, we'll see him next year in Steven Spielberg's West Side Story. Interesting. But yeah, yeah Goldfinch, uh, major L for all parties. Yeah, tough. Uh, it sounds like Sarah Paulson is really, and uh, uh, of course the queen uh, from, uh, God, I can't think of her, Nicole Kidman, I'm sorry. <laughs> Put out my head. Uh, it sounds like they're the only two that kind of leave this unscathed in a sense um if if any of them got out of unscathed yeah. <laughs> i'm gonna move on to i think a movie we both enjoyed and i was able to see hustlers lorena scafaria dave i mean this is a movie that i feel like came out of nowhere and has just like totally captured people's attention um and you know obviously it's hard to have a movie with J-Lo and all the stars in this that there are and to say it kind of came out of nowhere. But when, if you looked back, what, two months ago and you said the Goldfinch and Hustlers is dropping on the same weekend, I think almost everybody would have said, oh, the Goldfinch, I know that movie. The Hustlers, right. mm-hmm. not nearly as well known. And this movie's killing it. It's box office from what I understand. Yeah, $33.2 million opening weekend. That's it. a record for XTX, the biggest opening in its five-year history. And J-Lo, record opening weekend for her whole career, passing um, Monster-in-Law from 05. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny, you, you say it come out of nowhere, but it really did. Be, I mean, 
I knew about this movie earlier in the year when the casting got announced. J-Lo had been for a while, but like Constance and Kari and Lizzo and uh, Usher, all, all that um, news, that didn't come out until a few, like, you know, seven, eight months ago. And then I was really surprised when, oh, wait, that movie's coming out this year? Kind of crazy. And then you realize $20 million budget, 29-day shoot, really condensed, really to scale film. And as you said, when you're, when you're managing, uh, I think, three in-demand talents, one of which is your lead, your co-lead in J-Lo, uh, a lot of hoops to juggle through. And uh, Scafaria has said that it was it was definitely a challenging production. She would not recommend trying to, to do it this way again. But yeah, I was also surprised it was going at TIFF. I was like, Hustlers at TIFF? That's, you know... People do awards campaigns kicking off at TIFF. Is this smart? And then out of TIFF, you're like, oh, wait, this movie rules. How I get it. And once you see it, you're like, yeah, this does rule. And I read the uh, story it's based on in New York Magazine, The Hustlers It Scores. It's a long read. And in a sense, I almost wish I didn't read it because it's the plot of the, the real life story. And they changed the character names. But the plot, for the most part, is verbatim in the film. And like actual mm. lines about stuff like, giving blowjobs for 300 and and like there's just there's verbatim quotes from the story that are in the script yeah it would stand out from a script perspective but i was like oh shit i actually know the beats of this movie more than i expected because i read the story at a time yeah. but yeah uh out of nowhere and huge success really exciting yeah it's it you know when i saw the producers of this being adam mckay and will ferrell uh it made the movie made a lot more sense to me, um, and the movie. I mean, it's well told. It's not confusing at all. But the way it was edited, and the way that it looked, reminded me a lot of The Big Short in a lot of ways. You know, touching obviously on the financial crisis as a theme, but some of the cuts, you know, showing these ancillary characters to explain a larger concept that's uh, out in the world that's then impacting the the uh, storyline or the characters you know you think about j-lo walking through the club and talking about the the levels of wall street guys that there are as an example mm -hmm. of that yeah where it's like the the little fish on the totem pole the middle guy and then like the top ceos and then they right. they go to them dancing in the private room and it's Secret uh dance. just it, yeah it reminded me a lot of the big short crossed with like goodfellas crossed with magic mike obviously for the, the similarity in like the dancing and things like that but this movie was just goddamn delight. And it really kicks off with Jennifer Lopez's appearance in the movie with her onstage performance. Jesus Christ, man. <laughs> <laughs> How is she 50? 50 years old, doing an elaborate pole dancing striptease to Fiona Apple's criminal. Super impressive from a physical perspective, given her age. Mm -hmm. And also really, I think, compelling uh, scene in the film. For obvious reasons yeah and uh basically from there it's like a rocket you know and you, you see ramona played by jennifer lopez um befriending destiny constance Wu, uh and it, it's really fun to see the, like their relationship build um and i think the only knock i might have on the film at all is i didn't find constance Wu's performance totally engaging throughout um but jennifer lopez is throwing 100 miles per hour on the black the entire movie and right, it's sure. just so delightful and you mentioned the big cast 
I feel like everybody gets a moment in there, you know, whether it's Lizzo like running in to say ushers in the club. And then the entire Usher. ushers, yeah, <laughs> the entire usher scene is just absurd, and uh, the musical cues, <laughs> the way that mm-hmm. that they, they build moments up, or, yeah. or that they they background moments using music and other things, it's just uh, really really impressive. Um, why don't we talk about maybe some of the performances, some of the moments that really stood out to you most from this? Yeah, I think you're right on with the, the music cues, man. Um, starting right off with JLo's opening number, as we said, but really tasteful selection of late aughts songs for this. Um, yeah. And I think they all make sense. Obviously, doing Love in the Club by Usher, the Usher cameo, awesome. But doing Scott Walker's Next when they first start drugging people and like the line when he's like feels like jelly as the guy's like fucking like losing his yeah. uh, consciousness that that was great and then more obvious stuff like Britney Spears Gimme More and Big Sean's Dance Ass and uh, some Janet Jackson in this as well uh, the cues are are good song choices but also dropped in the film really well and shout mm-hmm. out getting all of these songs cleared because I'm sure a lot of these were, were challenging. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you're yeah. right. Like, everyone really has a a good moment. And yeah, I think Constance, uh, Destiny, for the most part, it's kind of down the middle, right? Yeah. At least the characterization in this is. And I think in real life, that probably isn't the case. But uh, you know, real name, in real life, her name is Rosalind. But uh, Constance kind of moves the plot and like plays off J-Lo, but Kiki Palmer as Mercedes, hilarious. I've always been a big fan of Kiki Palmer. Like, she was really great in Scream Queens, which I really mm-hmm. liked. Short lived show on Fox. Um, and now she's a meme right now with the <laughs> the uh, not knowing who Dick Cheney uh, yeah. video with Vanity Fair. It's going around right now. Hilarious. But she's good. Willie Reinhardt, who I hadn't really heard of before. She's from Riverdale. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's a girl who pukes throughout the whole movie. She, yeah. uh, she's great. She was really good too, and uh, yeah, man. I think uh, then Cardi and Lizzo a, a f- stunt casting at the end of the day. But uh, I mean, if you're gonna have Cardi for a few scenes, it's nice that one of them is teaching Constance how to, you know, give lap dances. Yeah, of Cardi's time, in my opinion. <laughs> and Cardi B, she's such a fun personality, but I feel like she actually like steals a lot of scenes that she's in. And like you said, she's in like maybe like four or five of them throughout. But she's so magnetic on the screen. It's just like uh, I wanted. I wanted more of her for sure. And it, and it actually feels a little noticeable to me when she just kind of disappears. Um, right. Obviously, yeah. they only had her for like a day on set or something like that. But yeah, um, it's noticeable. Like once we're like into the high section, then you just kind of realize, oh wait, yeah, we're not going to see Cardi ever again. We've advanced several years. It's over. Yep. How darn. Yeah. Um, you know what scene I really really loved was when things kind of go wrong with uh, uh i forget the the blonde haired character's name who pukes a lot um right. when when she has the guy who's like passed out jumped off yep the balcony and thought he could like fly or whatever and then constance kind of has to figure that whole scene out and then she had that almost like goodfellas like tracking shot in a sense where she's like running through a house and runs across the street to get her kid from the babysitter and then goes to the the school and walks her in everybody's looking at her with her blood covered like uh, yeah, hoochie outfit or however you want to put it, uh, going out outfit. But it's uh, 
it, I just found that scene so engaging and I felt like it encapsulated everything the movie was, which is this really funny and engaging look at these people who are doing these really awful things, but you just, you're rooting for because you kind of get this more human side that, you know, Ramona is, even though she's kind of like seen as this boss in a sense, and especially in the interview moments, is really built up by Destiny as this, like, always in control, like, kind of putting it on Ramona. She's also this sweet woman who's, like, trying to help the people around her, maybe not always in the, the most well-guided ways, but uh, she does seem to care about the people in her life a lot and how Destiny is this really uh, broken and, and lonely person who's just looking to feel connected and a part of something since her mom left. Um, I, I think they do a really good job of building all that out. Any other scenes that stood out to you? Uh, you know, I, they, they manage a lot of Destiny's struggles with being a mom, right? And plays that off of Ramona's seemingly successful run at being being a mom and having people work for her and being able to manage that more. But, you know, I think like, the lazy stuff is like, oh, this movie, no, it's a, it's a movie about women uh, working for themselves. And it's all pro-women and all this. But that's all true. But the movie, because it's a kind of framed against the specter of the financial crisis and it's framed about working people or the system doesn't really support them, right? I think it's just the whole like sentiment of the plot is much smarter than you expect going in when you hear it's just a movie about uh, strippers and, you know, go-go dancers that rob their clients, right? Like it, the movie actually, I think, says a lot, uh, which, you, again, you didn't expect going in. So it's, I think there's actually really a lot to glean from the movie. And even if you don't want to think too hard about it, as we said before, J-Lo is just kind of crushing it the whole time. Yeah. And it's her best work since at least Out of Sight or Selena, oh, right? Which is for sure 20 years ago. So and part of that's J-Lo's fault. She hasn't picked a lot of great projects as a film, as her, in her film career, but it's uh, really exciting. I know there's a lot of buzz about her being nominated for an Oscar for this. I think it's a little early to say if that's for certain, but she was at least in the mix, which I mean, good for her. Exciting. Yeah. yeah. So Hustlers, man, kind of wild. I did not, I mean, this is a adult drama success that we always talk about being so rare these days. And it's just a great time. Also shout out Julia Stiles, man. Hollywood has not known yeah. there since the Bourne movies and it's a small role, but I'm just happy to see she's, back out there again you know yeah um, it was funny I, I literally turned to my girlfriend and i was like julia styles <laughs> i like, didn't even expect that at all and the way that it cuts to the interviews it's just like very catchy off guard um hustlers great movie go see it um why don't we talk about some any predictions now but to wrap up uh where do you want to start with these dave you want to start small to big sure that sounds fitting all right. Do you want to do the actors? Do you want to do the uh, any of the writing categories? Anything you wanted to highlight? Yeah, I start with the actors. You know, we we talked about the nominations when they came out back in July, July 16. So check that video out. We kind of talked more about the actors and shows that were snubbed before and uh, 
anything that surprised us about the overall crop. So not we don't want to rehash that. So just check that video out if you're curious about more top level stuff. This time we'll just kind of think who will win, who should win for the Emmys coming this Sunday. But yeah, start the actors. Yeah, and why don't we work our way through each category? So we'll start with um, limited series, uh, just to kind of touch on those. So supporting actor in a limited series, um, pretty, I mean, a pretty good category. Uh, you know, there there's six people nominated. Probably the highlights. We don't need to go through everybody. You can check that out on your own. Uh, I definitely have Stellan Skarsgård and Michael K. Williams up there, j- just for the names in general. But uh, Skarsgård on Chernobyl, I think, is awesome. Um, and Michael K. Williams, I haven't seen When They See Us, but pretty much everything he's in, he kills it. And I could see him getting some love here, especially because I don't have When They See Us winning in a lot of other categories. So I think this could be a place where uh, they, they get one for that Netflix series. Who do you got? It's funny, I've seen a lot of love on all the predictor sites for Ben Wishaw for a very English scandal on mm-hmm. Prime. So I haven't seen Ben Wishaw mm-hmm. is good. Um, so I'll throw it out there. Yeah, Stone Skarsgård, uh, Paul Dano from Escape of Danamora. You know, those yeah. are movie actors on TV. More understated roles, though. So I wonder where they lean here. I don't know, this is kind of one that I kind of have a hard time... Uh, Picking one because again, George Clooney was not picked for Catch Twenty Two, who I expected to be here. So, uh, this is one I think it's hard to get a read on, but I'll just def- defer to the predictors and go with Ben Wishaw. But I think Skarsgård would be my choice because he's the only one of these I've actually seen. Yeah, Skarsgård was really, really good in Chernobyl, as were, were most of the performances. Uh, supporting actress on limited series, me. Um, I'm looking at Patricia Clarkson from Sharp Objects. Uh, I think she, I think she takes this home pretty easily, in my opinion. Um, I, Margaret Qualley for Fosse Verdon. Uh, Alshin, I couldn't really see her winning this. Uh, any other standouts to you? No, I think it's Clarkson. I mean, Patricia Arquette will come up again. Uh, she could, I guess, win twice for the act. But yeah, I think this is pretty clearly Felicia Clarkson for Sharp Objects to me. Perhaps the only win for Sharp Objects from last year. Yeah, I think it's a pretty easy call. All right, why well, don't we move into the lead actors then? Lead actor in a limited series or movie. Who do you got? Uh, this is an interesting one as well. Uh, I think it's going to be the guy from When They See Us, Jarrell Jerome. He plays. I can see that. He plays his character as both a young person and an adult. The only one in the cast to do that. Um, I think when they see us, Netflix is putting basically everything into that show um, for it. So he would be my choice. I think his only real competition for this is probably Mahershala for True Detective. Mm-hmm. Um, Sam Rockwell. I don't know if they want to give an award out for playing a problematic man, Bob yeah. Fosse. So I don't know if the optics are good for that. <laughs> Uh, Jerry Harris, Chernobyl, good, but, you know, understated performance. So, stacked one for sure. Uh, But, yeah, I'll go with Jerome. Yeah, uh, I I have Jared Harris up there, too, just because I have have a feeling Chernobyl is either going to hit big or uh, go down without anything uh, coming its way. But it really just captured the conversation, as did When They See Us, which we haven't seen. So, uh, I could definitely see Jarrell Jerome. 
Mahershala, he's just beloved by all these uh, yeah. award. I mean, just beloved in general, but especially by the award academy. So uh, I really, I don't think you can count him out. He actually probably would be my pick. Um, what about lead actress in limited series? Who do you got at the top? So Patricia Arquette for Escape Dan Amora. She already won the Globe, the SAG Award, and the Critics' Choice Award for this role because, you know, obviously it's been a while since the show came out, right at the beginning of the eligibility period. And she's like beat Amy Adams and Sharp Objects already and set in these categories, but she hasn't gone head-to-head with Michelle Williams from Fosse yeah. Bird. So I think it's truly really a two-horse race for them. And I would not be surprised. Michelle Williams sneaks in there. What I just said about Bob Fosse, the opposite thinking stands for Gwen Verdon, someone who wasn't as appreciated as she deserved to be yep. in her time, right? Um, and again, Arquette is a bit of old news for Stephen mm-hmm. Anamora, given the way the, the calendar worked. But it's between those two. You can just hear Michelle Williams giving the speech now, right? You know, that this is for this is where Gwen Verdon never really got her shine when she was alive. You know, you can just hear it. So I, I could see that happening. I'd love to see Amy Adams win this. Um, but I, I mean, someone that is definitely pulled up by different award academies. Um, but I don't think it's going to, uh, happen going with Michelle Williams. And finally, who do you got for the limited series? Uh, a category where I think we've seen like half of them, I believe. Yep. Uh, f- four of, well, yeah, uh, three of five. Three of five. Uh, I think it's when they see us. It's that or Chernobyl are the only two mm-hmm. that have a shot. But it feels in Netflix like this is the this will be their first win in a series for a series award for them, and they didn't really they win, want it. And didn't it, they win comedy pushing. last year? What's that? They, didn't they win comedy last year with uh, the one with Michael Douglas? Didn't that win comedy? Series? Not the major, not the major award. Oh, gotcha. Um, that maybe the the, the 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 Comiskey method. I'm pretty sure won last year. Oh, did it? Shit. Well, let me just double. Let me just double back on that. Well, and HBO, they're, they're they're focused on Thrones, right? With 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 their main their main show. So Chernobyl, I think Chernobyl again, as you said, really captured a moment. It's gonna be it was a kind of a surprise hit. It's shocking how big it actually got yet. When they see us, I think really also kind of speaks to the time in a way unlike anything else in this category and like most things most things nominated. So I think that's that, that, that's what I'm gonna go with. Yeah, actually I think um I think it was an acting category that one I think right. Michael Douglas won for best lead actor. So that, that was my bad on that. Um but yeah, I, I could see it being um, when they see us, it, like like you said, it's between that and Chernobyl. Um, obviously, because I've seen it, I'd like Chernobyl to win. But uh, when they see us, probably going to pull it out. Let me move on to comedy next. And then we'll, we'll wrap up with the drama. Starting back down at the bottom again. Uh, supporting actor in a comedy series. Man, there is really only one person I, I want to win this category. Um, and, but I think. Anthony Kerrigan? <laughs> yeah, that, that was it. Um, but I, I think if they win, it's going to say a lot about how the night's going to go for the following, uh, comedy categories. And that's, I want Tony Hale to pull it out for B. Um, he's won he, twice before? 
Yeah, I, I believe so. Yeah, uh, playing Gary, and uh, he is just fantastic. You know, this is a category where uh, Tony Shalhoub has won in the past. Yeah. Um, uh, really stacked, just top to bottom. Henry Winkler, Stephen Rue, Alan Arkin. A lot of people in this are. Winkler won last year. I'm I'm really hoping that Tony Hale pulls it out, but I think if he does, it's gonna signal a big night for Veep potentially, which makes me a little bit concerned for some of my other favorites moving forward that we'll be talking about. Where are you at with this category though? And I think it's gonna be Winkler again. Uh that means like the reward repeats. Yeah, then again, Tony Hale is also a repeat. So interesting idea. Maybe they move on from Barry. After this year, uh, Barry season two is better than season one, so I don't know uh, where the calculus is there. But yeah, I think it's a Hale or Winkler with Shaloub kind of on the outside, given that he has won this recently. But uh, ultimately, kind of tough to call. Yeah, it, it, it's a tough category for sure. Uh, supporting actress, also a pretty tough category for a comedy series. Um, shout out to Betty Gilpin. Getting that nomination for Glow. <laughs> I don't right. see her Season two. pulling this out. Um, I, I have Alex Borstein. Who, uh, for Maisel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think she's been she, a bit of an awards juggernaut. Yeah. And yeah. I, I see it continuing. I, I believe she won last year as well, right? She did, yeah. yeah. Um, I think a lot of people would really pull for Anna Chlumsky and Veep, who's been nominated before but has never won. Um. Olivia Coleman, who's got a lot of love recently, but she is great on Fleabag. But yeah, I think it's Borstein. Probably yeah. pretty easily. Pretty easily, in my opinion. Uh, who do you got for lead actor in a comedy series? This uh, is the category right here. Bill Hader. Yeah. Pretty easy. He won last year. And I guess Ted Danson is on the outside looking in with Good Place. But yeah, I think it's Hader. HBO. Yeah. I think so, too. Um, Ted Danson is uh, has the second best odds to win in this category, but I think Hayden walks with this pretty easily. What about lead actress, though? Uh, yeah, so is Julia Louis-Dreyfus suddenly mm-hmm. going to go six for seven with her role as Selena Meyer? I don't think so. She's going to win. This is this is probably the toughest category that I've Oh, made. I agree. <laughs> I mean... Uh, not, not seeing Dead to Me, uh, and only seeing a couple episodes of, of Russian, of, uh, Shit's Creek, sorry. Um, pretty much every, everyone else I've seen, I think, is deserving of the award. I mean, Rachel Brosnahan won it last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, JLD, like you said, pretty much wins it every year. She plays Selena and very deserving. Natasha Leone, incredible. And Phoebe Waller Bridge, probably the, the hottest uh, in terms of most success and, and just critical acclaim right now in the business. I think any of them could take it home. Right. I would love, I, I would love to see Phoebe Waller Bridge get it because I, I would love to see Fle- Fleabag also get the best comedy. But yeah, so Leon and Waller Bridge are both also nominated for writing mm-hmm. for their shows. So I think one of them will win in that category. I would love Leone to win. I think she's probably the best peer choice of this. And I mean, Julia has been nominated 25 times and has 11 wins, right? He doesn't need this award. Yet, I mean, we're just kind of wrapping up the, the Hall of Fame, you know, plaque right now. So, yeah. and Veep is going off the air. So, 
the the hard thing is, and I think a lot of times the Emmys fall into this, is they do give repeat winners, but they also do that, I think, with the idea like, oh, well, when this show ends, well, the other show will finally get its due or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and, that, you know, some shows fall victims to that, like Mad Men never really got the critical acclaim it should have. John Hamm never won. Yeah, which is just bizarre. But they did Steve Carell for The Office. The thing is, Fleabag is such a cultural phenomenon this year, and pretty much yeah. everybody's saying uh, it's the best thing they've seen this year. You have to watch it. I saw a tweet from Ryan Reynolds saying it's so good he wishes he had never seen it. Yeah, actually. amazing. <laughs> um, which I, I find hysterical. Um, and I think because there's not going to be more Fleabag, I think that it yes. has a shot to actually dethrone BPA. So right. I, I can see people on Bridge this out. And and that's what was so exciting about being nominated. It was like the Emmys got it right the second time and really, you know, gave the show some love. And I mean, how many did we get? Three or four, if I remember right, but uh, writing the show and then mm-hmm. Fuller Bridge. Uh, anyway, because this the belief is that the show will never return, why does it need to go down as one of those shows that should have won? Why can't it just win? No yeah. one's going to think any differently about Veep or JLD. <laughs> yeah, depending on if they win these last these last set, you know. So. And for all the reasons we're mentioning, this is why I think it's going to pull out best comedy series. Um, it's, yeah. it, I really, I mean, you have a really stacked category, uh, Barry, Fleabag, The Good Place. I mean, I love all these shows, except for Shit's Creek. I'm not big, as big of a fan of, but mm-hmm. I mean, it, I, I feel like it would be a, a travesty if a show that's garnering this much acclaim, this much love, so unique, uh, really propelling a new star into the comedy world goes on unawarded. So uh, what we've talked about is pretty much everybody except for Russian doll getting some love um, from the other categories, but I think Fleabag takes it home. What do you think? I don't know, man. On the one hand, Maisel won eight times for season one, including. The best <laughs> uh, I feel like if Maisel did win for season two, everyone would be like, that's not even a shot against the show. Everyone would be like, what the fuck? Like, it's, it's, it's Veeper Fleabag this yep. year, right? And again, just because Russian Doll doesn't have a chance. Russian Doll is amazing. And you're not even uh, mentioning Barry, which we love. Right. Right. And, <laughs> but Veep has a show. I mean, Veep has won like 17 times. Yeah. And this is the final season. And HBO as a voting block usually sticks together. So I think Veep wins. Fleabag should win, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, I want Fleabag to get something. I don't think it'll be this. Um, I, I think it's just going to be the writing award ultimately. But I feel like that would be a damn. travesty. But it'll, it'll be really interesting to watch. All right. Wrapping it up with the drama. With the drama. Uh, what are, what are your, what's your prediction for supporting actor in a drama series? Look at the screen if you're on YouTube.com plus Nostalgia Pod. <laughs> And Peter Dinklage will win his fourth Best Supporting Actor in the role of Tyrion Lannister. Normally, you would think when three people from the same show are all nominated in the same category, they will pick each other off and split votes. But the problem with that is, who is who else do you actually realistically see winning in this place? Jonathan Banks has never won before mm-hmm. by tons of nominations. Giancarlo Esposito, same thing. And 
I don't think Nikolai Costa-Waldo is going to get there, certainly not Alfie Allen. So I think it's just Dinkle again. Yeah, I think Dinklage takes this one home as well. Uh, supporting Actress also has four Game of Thrones nominations, including Gwendolyn Christie, who nominated herself. So shout out to her. She's fucking mm-hmm. awesome. Uh, <laughs> who do y'all win in this one? So this is the case. Well, now there's four Thrones people. I think they will all split each other up. Because mm-hmm. again, I mean, how do you really pick? They all had their standout moments. I know where you're going with this. My head is in the same place. Fiona Shaw, baby. Well, that's who my personal choice is. All the odds people think it's Julia Gardner from Ozark, nah. the breakout of the show. Nah. Fiona Shaw. I would pick Fiona Shaw, of course, for Killing Eve, but look out for Julia Gardner. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> uh, moving forward to lead actor in a drama series in a drama um yeah i'm not going jason bateman here i'm not going sterling k brown i'm going with a bit of a surprise one though bob odenkirk i love that saul's fucking awesome I- i'm pretty much just picking what i want to see but it'll probably <laughs> be kit harrington uh, i guess i don't know yeah, sterling's won twice before uh yeah. Billy Porter. I know people will love to see that. Yep. Nah, I'm, I'm going Bob Odenkirk. I think he, I think Saul finally gets some love. It's right. It, it deserves it. And Odenkirk, especially the way that he leaves that last season where you see him slip into slipping, slipping Jimmy again. It's yeah. uh, just so masterfully done. And the show's show relies pretty much wholly on his performance. Um, and, uh, uh, Shay, or sorry, what's her name? Rhea, Rhea Seahorn. Um, yeah, so. was not nominated still. still Bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Um, who are you picking for this? I'm having a hard time with this one, to be honest. I mean, uh, Owen Kirk would be my choice. I saw a lot of people saying Bateman would win. Uh, nah. He has been nominated a lot the past few years for Ozark, but. Oh, this Ozark. You, you think Billy Porter could win? Kind of. Uh, I could. Work choice. I could see I it. See, I would be I pumped. Pitt winning. I really don't. And Sterling's won twice before. Um, I feel like This Is Us has kind of waned as a critical show. Not that that has mattered in the past for the Emmys. Look no further than Modern Family. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll go, I'll go Billy Porter. I, I just don't have a good read on this one, to be honest. Yeah. It, it's a tough category for sure. Um, lead actress in a drama series. I guess... Uh, look, just looking here. Does anyone pop off the list at you? Yeah, it should be Jodie Comer, mm-hmm. but I think it'll be Sandra O oh instead. Sandra O oh wasn't yeah. even nominated last year, or no? She's sorry, she didn't win last year, and Comer wasn't even nominated. Yeah, I feel like that's kind of like a appreciation for all Sandra O oh has done for TV, not just Killing Eve season two, which was not our favorite season of the show. Just put it that way. Uh, yeah, but also like. I don't see Viola coming back to win for the show at this point. Nor do I see Amelia Clark pulling through either. So I think it's just you pick between the Killing Eve actor actresses. You're not going Robin Wright? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Robin Wright. I think Netflix has spent like a one dollar <laughs> campaign for the last <laughs> cards. Uh President under President Underwood, uh, Madame Underwood. Actually, I read I'm, I'm going to say Amelia Clark. Uh, <laughs> well, was it intriguing? No, nah, it sounded really dumb. Uh, 
I, I'm actually going to say Amelia Clark. Um, she, she carries a lot of the season, uh, her turn. One of her is, better seasons. Yeah, for sure. And her turn is, uh, a huge moment. And not only, I think, for, uh, the show, but just TV in general, it's going to be a moment people are going to remember and talk about. Now, how they talk about the execution leading up to that moment might be different, but I think the performance in general is good. So I'm going to say Amelia Clark gets the win here, um, which would actually be really interesting because I need to be talking drama series, Game of Thrones, get three of four, if my predictions are correct. So probably not going to happen, but throwing throw the guesses out there. Mm-hmm. When we wrap up, Drama series. What's taking it home, Dave? Game of Thrones is winning. Like, case closed. <laughs> the final yeah. season of Game of Thrones. It's the, yeah. the record for the most nominated uh, season of a show in Emmy's history. Um, your thoughts on the season as a whole, critically, honoring Game of Thrones one last time for grabbing 45 million people each week, unlike anything else. Deserves uh, deserves love, so for sure. And I think the only show you could really make a case for, perhaps, would be Secession season one. But I don't expect <laughs> Secession to win much uh, else leading up to this because it's kind of under nominated. So mm-hmm. it just seems unrealistic. Therefore, Thrones, uh, in a walk, honestly. Yeah, man. I I just hear the Secession music playing. <laughs> Uh, as, as it cuts to a stunned, uh, DB, uh, Benny, Benny off and Weiss in, in the crowd. Just can't believe it. And Greg, Greg the egg, that Ichabod crane motherfucker, motherfucker. holding up the Emmy for best drama. Shout out Nick Braun. That's, that's my, uh, these are my, my, my bold predictions, I guess, for the Emmys. I'm really excited to watch because I feel like there's a lot here that we like. So. Game of, Game, uh, of Game of Thrones probably will win, but it was nominated 32 times this year, 47 previous wins, 161 total nominations. None of the other shows going up against have more than nine nominations this year. So by 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 transitive property, it's the overwhelming favorite for best drama series. Yeah. That's what we say about comedy. Comedy is much closer. But yeah, I'm excited to watch. I think there's a lot of good stuff, and you know, with Veep. And Thrones at the end of the line. Last year it was Americans at this point. You know, there's just room for, for, for new blood. And we've kind of already seen that with shows like Succession and Pose getting recognized. I think with Bodyguard, we're gonna, I think we can get even more of that. So, uh, it's kind of like the, we're kind of in between eras in a certain sense, you know? Yeah, for sure. And it's, it's interesting though, because as we're in between eras, there's so much on the horizon that you could see being nominated next year. Yeah. The Morning Show, The Mandalorian, Watchmen, uh, these sort of shows we're so highly anticipating. This time next year, we'll probably also be talking about nominations for Rami Malek and Mr. Robot in its final yeah. season. Um, gonna be really, uh, fun to see how the streaming wars and the money being poured into these streaming services affects these award nominations moving forward. So, uh, a lot, a lot of fun stuff to be talking about and looking forward to. And Dave, what should the people be looking forward to next week? Yeah, so next week we have <laughs> the Emmys winning. We'll go over the recap. We'll see what we get right, what we get wrong, what surprised us. And top of the list, of course, is Ad Astra. 
from James Gray, starring Brad Pitt and Tommy Lee Jones. It was premiered at Venice, and everyone says it rules, and I hoped it would. So excited for that. Uh, Brittany Howard of Alabama Shakes yeah. has her solo album, Jamie, coming out. Hope that. And Downton Abbey movie comes out. That's a big deal for a lot of people. And Rambo 5. Uh, only one good Rambo movie, but hey, there's another one coming out. Stallone, <laughs> he's back. Creed, why not? <laughs> <laughs> so for all of our analysis on that and more, follow Nostalgia Pod on Twitter. Go to soundcloud.com slash nostalgiapod to find all the ways to get the podcast. Give us a five-star rating review on iTunes. And lastly, hit that subscribe button if you're watching on YouTube. Uh, just take the fucking money. <laughs> Peace out. Yeah.